Welcome to Herb W. Morgan's Slaying Bulls and Bears, a podcast about economics, markets, investing, politics, and profit. Every Monday, in less than 20 minutes, Wall Street portfolio manager Herb W. Morgan distills the complex and complicated into the simple and sensical. Here's Herb now. Good morning, everybody. Monday, October 24th, 2022. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer here at Efficient Market Advisors. This is my weekly economic and market commentary. It's also available as a podcast. The name of that podcast is Slaying Bulls and Bears, and it is available in all the different podcast formats. The presentation you're seeing and or hearing is prepared by me for use with you. Whether you are a financial advisor or an investor, you are still expected to make your own investment decisions. Nothing contained in this presentation should be treated as investment advice. There are no recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities. It's purely for informational purposes. It's accuracy, adequacy, and completeness, or completeness, cannot be guaranteed. What we had, as predicted, really strong positive week in equity prices despite less than stellar economic news and that is sort of where we are right now we're moving to the point where the fed rate hikes and the fed balance sheet runoff and the lack of sort of supplemental fiscal stimulus that we all had during covid which caused a booming economy which was all very inflationary we're now getting a a economy that is uh, deflating a little bit. I wouldn't say going into contraction or recession yet, but deflating, which is all disinflationary, which is, of course, the Fed's objective. Their objective is to take away the inflationary pressure of the economy without dipping into recession, or more importantly, without related job losses. That is the big deal. The job market remains strong. So the market, the equity markets, responded saying, you know, perhaps we're seeing some impacts of the Fed rate hikes and perhaps the end of Fed rate hikes is now visible on the horizon. And that's what's been driving markets higher, plus the fact that they were just incredibly oversold. That rate of decline, that second derivative, if you will, was so significant and so intense. The oversold indicators, the sentiment indicators, the volatility indicators, everything sort of intimated. Um, did I just make up a word? Suggested, everything sort of suggested a couple of weeks ago, as I told you, that the market was due for a sharp rally. We are getting that sharp rally. I don't think it's quite over yet. I think we have a little ways to go um, uh, as of now. But as you can see, strong across the board returns in equities last week. Bond market continues to sell off. And look at long dated treasuries. I mean, down 36%. Normally, when you have a bear market in equities, Treasuries catch the bid because there's a view that the Fed ultimately comes to the rescue. This bear market is driven by the Fed removing that policy accommodation last year. We're going to talk uh, economic data first, then we're going to go a little bit into um, what happened with China over the weekend and why it matters to us as um, investors. Okay, first we got the New York State and the Philly Fed, two regional manufacturing surveys. It's third consecutive month of contraction for New York State. This is what I mean by the Fed's 
uh, rate hike policy and balance sheet runoff starting to have an impact. You can see lots of years of growth. You can see you know period of decline there, big period of decline in the COVID shutdown, a little back and forth here, and now contraction. Uh, came in at minus nine. That's pretty significant. It was below worst expectations. Um, future conditions also went into negative territory. So this is kind of this thing that the Fed needs to see to know their policy might be having some, some impact. Uh, Philly Fed kind of told the same story. Uh, it was better um, than it was in, in uh, September, but still remains significantly in contraction, minus 8.7, also worse than um, estimate. And again, the outlook on future conditions declined. So this is what the Fed wants. This is the, these are the kind of things that reduce inflation expectations. This is exactly what the Fed is looking to see happen. It's a tight, tight, tight balancing act, really difficult to do. Of course, all the inflationary thing was sort of caused by both the Fed and the Congress with the appropriation of the fiscal policy um, uh, during COVID. But on a national basis, industrial production and capacity utilization actually rose. Industrial production rose four tenths of a percent. Remember the prior two were just regional surveys. Um, that's the third straight monthly increase. And I will tell you just from experience, there's a lot of people that watch capacity utilization as an inflationary sign. With capacity utilization rising, it typically presents inflationary pressure. So we had two sort of disinflationary reprints in Philly Fed. Um, and Empire State, and now this capacity utilization, I would say, uh, counters that. It's the opposite of that. Um, and it, you start getting into this 82, 83 range, and you get worried about inflationary pressure. So eh, we'll put this all in grain of salt. Now, on the strongly disinflationary component, we have the housing sector. Uh, the housing sector was a major contributor to the upward pressure in inflation. We were all very happy and excited in 2020 and 2021 as the value of our homes rose. And we were all so smart and we created all this equity um, and that is rapidly unwinding. Major contributor to CPI inflation with uh, owner's equivalent rent, which is a major component. The National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index fell to 38. That's almost down to where we were in the COVID era. Not, of course, as bad as we were. It's off the chart here on the left, but we're not as bad as we were during the housing crisis. It has fallen 10 consecutive months. That's every single month this year. Um, this goes all the way back to 1985. See a, a housing market um, this bad. Below 50 is contraction, so it is below 50. Uh, home sales dropped to 45. Future sales, 35. And traffic down to 25. There's virtually nobody uh, looking to buy new homes. Why? We've raised interest rates so much to counteract the inflation. Is this a good thing? It probably is. Does it mean you, your house, your home equity went up in 22? No, it didn't. But think about how much equity you grew in 20 and 21, kind of like your stock portfolio, right? Stock portfolio went up big in 2020, big in 21, and now we're wringing out some of the excess. In the end, it's probably healthy for the long term of, the, of our economy. And that's probably what the Fed's looking at. Housing starts also fell again, 8.1%, worse than expected. Although they did have a gain in August, 
So we're seeing housing starts and you can see permits actually up a little bit, well, 1.4%, but the trend is lower in both of those. The other one that's fallen uh, down considerably is home sales. It doesn't take a genius to say what was all this up here. This was ultra low zero interest rates. Both of my children bought their first um, home or condominium back in this era when interest rates were at an all time low. And of course we convinced them as parents to lock in that 30 year fix and not fall for the, the teaser three or five year rate because those three and five year arms are going to be coming and starting to adjust here pretty soon. And that's gonna put a big challenge on a lot of people. And that is going to put downward pressure on the housing market as people, some of those buyers won't be able to afford those new rates related to those uh, adjustments. This is the eighth straight monthly decline and the longest stretch of monthly declines in home sales, existing home sales since uh, the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. So lots of disinflationary data and components that means perhaps the end is near for the Fed. It's sort of a bad news is good news type situation, which is why the equity markets rallied again last week. And so far today, Monday, October 24th, at least as of 8.30 a.m. Pacific, they're rallying further. Weekly initial claims from unemployment fell to 214,000. This is a very good and low number. Continuing claims also at a very low uh, number, 1.38. 5 million. We have uh, earnings season well underway. We got a lot of the financial names out of the way in the last couple of weeks. They, and earnings in general are coming in a little better than expected. Only 99 names have reported. 72 have beaten estimates. Now, keep in mind that as you get closer to earnings dates, earnings estimates get revised, and we've had a lot of downward revisions. So, while 72 out of 99 beating is certainly a positive, it may not be as much of a positive as if earnings estimates had been increasing going into the season. What we have this week are the big giant technology and, um, and communication services names are coming this week. The big dogs, the, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the, the Googles, of course that's called Alphabet, Facebook's now called Meta. So this week's earnings reports and guidance, I think are going to be very, very important. So far though, the market's heading higher. So we're really happy about our equity market call. Uh, I've got some calls and emails from some of you saying, hey, great, prescient, prescient. But it's always good to know, it's always good to mention too, that when you got, sometimes you get some things wrong. And as you know, we've been for uh, five, six months, 10 months, I'm not sure, I have to go back and look. We've been in this uh, position small, equity position in China. And there was big, big, big action coming out of China over the weekend. But in order to put it all in perspective and to tell you where we are on that, so far wrong, um, I think it's good to have a little quick dummies guide to how China operates. First of all, you all know that Xi Jinping is the president of China, but his power is not really drawn from his position as president. It's really drawn from his power as the general secretary of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Even though China has a population of almost 1.5 billion people versus the US at 335 million people, 89, only 89 million people within the population are members of the Chinese Communist Party. Still at 89 million, that, rate, that puts it as you know, 
the largest political party in the world. The way China's government works, different from ours, is when, when parties in control, they control every branch of government, whether it's state, local, every branch of the military, every branch of the judiciary, and they currently control the entire, almost the entire legislative branch. The ruler of the Chinese Communist Party, in a sense, is a totalitarian dictator. He rules over four million different little, smaller, underneath government, legislative, judicial entities. They are all underneath one person in the hierarchy of China. Xi Jinping, or the ruler of China, the president of China, or the head of the Chinese Communist Party, is advised by a seven-member Politburo Standing Committee. Very, very powerful seven men in China. In addition to those seven, there are 18 additional, bringing that to a total of 25. But the Politburo Standing Committee, those seven, are close allies and advisors to President Xi Jinping. In addition, there is a Congress, so it sort of kind of looks a little bit like there's some element of uh, democracy in China. There's 3,000 members of that uh, Congress, and they do have multiple political parties. This is the legislative branch, branch of the Chinese government, but because it is dominated by the CCP and Xi Jinping is the undisputed ruler of the CCP, essentially is the undisputed ruler of the Congress. Nothing will come from Congress that he has not explicitly endorsed. In addition, there is something called the State Council. That's similar to our cabinet. It sits below the Congress, but does preside over all government departments. Even the military reports to the Congress, but the Congress, the party chief, the Communist Party chief, heads of the commission within the Congress that oversees the military. So again, there may be some things that make it look like there's checks and balances, but there really are not. The judiciary, the prosecutors are overseen by something called the Legal Affairs Commission, also headed by a Politburo member. And increasingly in recent years, the Chinese Communist Party has gone out and begun to strongly enforce loyalty and discipline, meaning any dissent, any disagreement is stamped down. This is, the trend here is not in, in a good way. For years, the CCP only enforced loyalty and discipline within its party membership, within those 89 million people. Uh, but now it's seen as going well beyond that, and that has got the world concerned. Every five years or so, not so, every five years, the Chinese Communist Party holds a meeting, and that meeting is called the National Party Congress. Coincidentally, I was in China in 2017, just uh, as a tourist, uh, the last time this party was held and Xi Jinping was elected leader at that time. He was also elected in 2012. This breaks with recent tradition from the last two leaders where there was a sort of unofficial two-term maxi maximum, 10 years. And after Xi Jinping was elected in 2017, he went and, and removed this two-term maximum limitation setting himself up in 2018 for the 2022 election, which has now come to fruition because he's been reelected and reaffirmed. There's also a recent, there's also been an understanding that once you reach the age of 68, you must retire from the Chinese Communist Party. 
Xi Jinping is beyond the age of 68. And of course, he is the head of that. So this breaks that understanding. And this causes concern to the Western world of the concept of a ruler for life. Sunday's outcome was not totally unexpected by those who follow China, the China economy, China government, but it was certainly a blow to the cause of human freedom and democracy around the world. It is noted that the Politburo picks that Xi Jinping made over the weekend were more seen as people loyal to him than necessarily possessing experience or expertise in government in areas that they uh, operate. So what does this mean for us, for Chinese equities? Um, a lot of the case for investing in Chinese equities back, let's say back, well, there's 20, back in this area here, uh, which is where we began to accumulate some shares for our investors, was that COVID was winding down and that the economy was being held back greatly uh, by the zero COVID uh, policy. This uh, investment thesis also uh, included elements that, well, they're on a different economic cycle than the U.S. and they're seen as easing. They've been through some uh, rough patches, re regulatory reforms, uh, easing financial conditions and low valuations coupled with high growth. Chinese, China is still one of the highest, fastest growing uh, countries in the world. Despite that, China's gotten to a new low you can see here this morning. Why? Well, there's disappointment because Xi Jinping reiterated strongly there could there's not going to be a turn in the zero, not zero, there's a Z there, zero COVID strategy. There are increased concern, concerns about China's growing military presence in the Pacific and what that means uh, for the U.S. and its allies and the U.S. forward bases in the Pacific. And China's position vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan is growing more and more precarious. Despite that, we have this investment. We don't think selling into this weakness, this really what appears to be capitulation, would be wise. There's still an investment case for Chinese equities. Um, there are continued easing of financial conditions while the rest of the world is tightening. That is an opportunity. Um, there is likelihood that dollar strength uh, may be peaking because the rate hiking cycle may be peaking. And therefore, if the dollar begins to decline, uh, translating the, that investment back to U.S. investors could be favorable. Valuations on Chinese equities are very low at 11.9 forward, 11.9 times forward earnings and 13 times current. That's pretty cheap. Some people believe that the dictatorial imp implementation process of economic policies supports more rapid policy execution and coordination. It's true in a sense, if they get it right, we don't, they don't necessarily have the checks and balances that we do. I go back to 2008, uh, when we were trying to get TARP passed through the Congress and it failed and the markets tanked. Uh, in the Chinese system, Xi Jinping can wave his hand and any economic policy can essentially be enacted. With the leadership issue now settled, it is expected that Xi and his team are going to switch to more growth-oriented policies, making low valuations higher than the rest of the world economic growth potentially give you a lot of upside. There's risk, risk to be sure, many, many risks associated with investing in China. 
But third quarter GDP report, which had been delayed and got everybody concerned, it was delayed until the Congress and then they released it um, basically last night, our time. So that number is actually pretty good. GDP grew at 3.9%. That's up from 0.4 in the second quarter. The new number two to Xi Jinping is somebody named Li Qiang. And he was very key in securing the Tesla factory. That's an American company, of course, in Shanghai. And that is seen as a positive for economic growth. He is seen as pro-economic growth. Now, China is also under tight, uh, experiencing tight conditions because of U.S. export controls around technology. Still, in his acceptance or speech to the Congress, Xi stated that China is committed to international trade, which is pro-growth, pro pro-investment said that China cannot develop without the world, and the world also needs China. After 40 years of unflattering efforts toward reform and opening up, we have created two miracles, rapid economic development, long-term social stability. So in other words, in Xi Jinping's speech, he sort of recommitted to trade and to economic growth, but also focused on things like um, equality, et cetera. To be sure, it's a miracle. Right, 400 million people have been lifted out of poverty in China. That's never a bad thing. Still, the sell-off from the weekend's Congress is likely, in our view, capitulation. And uh, so therefore, uh, it might be a good time to rebalance a China equity position. It is a small equity position for us. And within our emerging markets position, of course, China is the largest uh, component to the emerging markets index. This week's economic data, we're looking at um, the S&P Global U.S. Manufacturing PMI and Services. These are the flash readings for October, looking to be about flat. So no growth, no major decline. House prices on Tuesday likely to have declined and uh, by FHFA and Case-Shiller standards. Consumer confidence down a little. New home sales expected to be down a lot at an annualized rate. Weekly claims still expected to be okay. That labor shortage is still there. Our third quarter GDP looking to be coming in, have come in first for print here, 2.3%. Or no, that's a that's his first print. Durable goods orders, uh, personal income spending, PCE prices on Friday, very important, pending home sales and consumer sentiment. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you again next week. Thank you for listening to Slaying Bulls and Bears. If you'd like to download the slides for this week's podcast, go to www.efficient-portfolios.com and join our mailing list. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate us online, and share with a friend if you found this helpful. See you next week.